0: Welcome to the Faith Dialogue podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Bear. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Welcome today to our Wednesday message. We're in a new series called Pondering Prophecy. Thanks for tuning in. On Sunday, uh, we're presently going through the Acts of the Apostles in a series called Unstoppable. Be sure to tune in on Sundays to hear a complete worship service. Last Wednesday, we introduced the first of the seven seals that are spoken of in the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation. Um, It was a, a sermon that we called the Rise of the Antichrist which is from Revelation 6 2 that says I looked and behold uh, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. You know in the book of Revelations the Apostle John is shown the judgments of God that come upon the entire earth and it's a series of seven seven seals followed by seven trumpets and then seven vials or bowls. The first four of the seven seals are symbolized by a rider on a different colored horse. The the colors are identified with these four horsemen in the first four seals as white followed by red, black, and then pale green. Last week we said that the rider on the white horse was the the Antichrist and the horse was white for for two specific reasons. One, he's a conqueror and ultimately will rule over Tevin King ten kings and and rule over the entire uh, entire world secondly the horse is white because the rider is the Antichrist and this Antichrist deceives the whole world good guys ride on right horses and Jesus comes back at the end of the book of Revelation on a white horse Uh, but this Antichrist is, is masquerading He masquerades as a good guy. People will be drawn to him. He'll be a master politician. He'll be very popular, uh, but ultimately he'll reveal his true colors, his hatred for the Jews and for Jesus Christ. Today we'll be looking at the second seal in the sixth chapter of Revelation. While the first seal was the actual beginning of the tribulation, we could say that this second seal, the opening of the second seal, is the beginning of the end. Jesus describes these events, particularly uh, in the first six seals, as, as birth pangs. Just like a woman in labor, they they start off relatively mild, but they progressively get worse and worse, and they progressively get closer together. The passage today from the sixth chapter of Revelation is, is relatively short. I'd recommend, re- recommend that you read the entire. 6th chapter of the book of Revelation um, as all of the six seals are are related and they and they build upon one another So let's read Uh, chapter 6 in Revelation beginning with verse 3 When he opened the second seal I heard the second living creature saying come and see another horse fiery red went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword." So let's unpack these verses, and as we do, we'll fill in what other scriptures are saying about the the same event, the seal that is opened at the beginning of the tribulation, the beginning of the end, as we described it. In this way, we'll see scripture interprets scripture. First, the one that is opening the seal, we're told is the, the lamb, the Lord Jesus, that is said to be the only one that is worthy to open the seals it's said that in the previous chapter Jesus is the one that is opening the seals the seals are sequential and Jesus calls these birth pangs uh, the rider on the red horse was granted the authority to take peace from the earth notice that with this second seal peace is broken from the earth and it isn't so much that war comes on initially The second seal follows the first. The rider on the red horse follows the first rider, and the first seal, was actually characterized by a a short time of a brief period of of peace. If it's a world peace that is promised by the Antichrist, it, it won't last long. If it's a peace in the Middle East, this peace treaty with Israel, we know from scripture that it will only last three and one half years, 42 months, and that's in Daniel 9 27. In any case, the world will, pro- will fall for the promise of peace that's given by this, this Antichrist. The Antichrist actually becomes famous for it. He's thought of as a natural leader, the one that can actually be trusted to rule and to reign. Ultimately, he rules over ten kings. But at the beginning of the Tribulation, people won't even recognize who he truly is. He will wait his time. The Antichrist is patient. He's a master deceiver. What we we don't know for sure is when the second seal, what we do know for sure is that when the second seal opens, this promise of peace and safety will be shattered. It'll be cut short. It could be that the peace that is taken actually propels the Antichrist to a position of authority. People often turn to government and to uh, a charismatic leader when their safety is, is threatened. The Apostle Paul reminds his readers regarding this time of the end. He says, when people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them, su- them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That's out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. Also, notice when peace is taken away, and this verse in Revelation 6, 5, it says that people should kill one another. We know that during or just preceding the tribulation, the Bible says there will be two specific military engagements, the war of Gog and Magog, and also the battles, and I use that battles plural, it's the battles of Armageddon, and they'll specifically occur during the tribulation. However, as the scripture says, regarding the second seal, it's with the second seal that peace is taken. It could be specifically that at the beginning The peace is taken through violence, mob riots, brutality, and chaos. Uh, We have a clue that that may be the case because Jesus says the days of tribulation will be like the days of Noah. In Genesis 6, 10, and 11, um, in speaking of Noah, it says Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the earth was corrupt. Corrupt um, in, um, in their knowledge of God and full of violence. I think all of us can agree that we have already seen the ugly head of violence in the earth. Not that this is an indication that the tribulation has already begun. The tribulation will not begin, the apostle said and made this very, very clear, until after that which is restraining is taken out or departs. Uh, that departure to be with Christ is described in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 and it will include every Born-again believer every true disciple of Jesus Christ whose sins have been blotted out Removed as far as the East is from the West what we're seeing today in places like Minneapolis and Seattle Portland New York and even Louisville lately and numerous cities and likely to be in a neighborhood near you is what happens when hatred rules in the hearts of men and women, when people are easily deceived and believe there is a huge conspiracy against them, a a systemic bias against minorities, against women, against people who look or live or believe differently than, than you do. This deception that we see today is called identity politics. And it's interesting that the slogans that we see increasingly painted on signs in the United States we see on TV overseas as well, um, they, they're printed and become graffiti on buildings all around the world. The slogan, the riots, the, the bloodshed and violence that we see around the world doesn't speak so much of solidarity with the cause in the United States as much as it sp- speaks instead to a, a powder keg. It's a powder keg of people who that are lovers of themselves lovers of money boastful proud abusive disobedient ungrateful unholy without love unforgiving slanderous without self-control brutal not lovers of the good treacherous rash conceited lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God and it says and this is out of uh, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy having a form of godliness but denying its power isn't that so true particularly today It's a fulfillment of what Paul said, again, to Timothy. The color red of this horse, of the the second seal, actually fiery red, is also symbolic. As red is one of the colors we see often in the Bible. Red is the color of blood, It's, it's the color of wine. You know, it's also the color of the dragon that we'll see in Revelation 12. I believe it's especially relevant that Isaiah speaks of it regarding sin. Isaiah 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they will be white like wool. Uh, the people on the earth that go through these terrible seven years, the seven years of tribulation, including what Jesus referred to as the Great Tribulation, Generally understood as the second half the last 42 months of the tribulation um, Have not dealt with their sin problem, and that's the issue There's a remedy and that remedy is Jesus, but the unbelieving world the tribulation is when God's judgment is being poured out on the unbelieving world always with the promise that people can repent and that they too can believe and be saved Isaiah 24, considered a tribulation prophecy, reads, uh, starting in verse 5, it says, The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the entire earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. God has ruled. God has judged the earth, and it has been found wanting, as the Bible says. The earth itself has been condemned. Now, take heart, because believers living today will not be present during the tribulation. They'll be with Christ in the heavens. And we actually see them represented in Revelation chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 4, as John writes, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were... 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. You know, there's so much speculation about these 24 elders that John sees before the throne of God. Are, are they angels? Are they Old Testament saints? Again, we let the Bible interpret the Bible, and we see that they are or represent the Church. The world, the words elders, priests, and crowns, are all words that are associated with believers with the church. The number 24 is likely not as much symbolic as it is representative as it was with King David. King David established 24 priestly divisions and 24 Levitical divisions to serve in the temple. Now see, all of the priests and Levites belonged to one of the 24 divisions. Each one of them had a turn to serve, an opportunity to be in that official capacity. It's for this reason that many scholars say these 24 elders before the throne of God represent the church in its entirety. Uh, going back to our scripture verse for today, note that this rider on the red horse was given a a mighty sword. As I mentioned before, the rider is not personified. There's no specific person. The only identifiable identifiable person riding any of these horses is the rider on the first horse, which we said was the Antichrist, and we've already spoken at length on the Antichrist. The mighty sword mentioned here with the second rider is interesting. In paintings and drawings dating back to the early Middle Ages, this rider on this red horse is often um, pictured upright, holding a a huge sword in in his right hand, ready to, to strike his enemies. What I find interesting is the Greek words that are used and that are translated here in English as mighty sword. It's a makhara magus, a makara magus in Greek. Sometimes these words are translated as a mighty sword, a large sword, or a great sword. And that while this makara magus is often the word that is used for a soldier's sword, the Greek lexicon that I have says it literally can be translated as a a slaughter knife, a short sword, or a dagger. It's, often used as for stabbing it's the short dagger that the Romans carried when they got in close according to uh, the lexicon it's an instrument for extracting retribution it depicts war and assassination and rebellion and revolt and massacre and this kind of dagger combined with the fact that the scripture says that the people will kill one another reminds me of more than just one or two uh, of times in the old testament when the enemies of israel suddenly began to kill each other in first samuel we're told of a war with the philistines and the scriptures say then saul and all his troops assembled and marched to the battle and they found the philistines in total confusion with each man wielding his sword against his neighbor In the book of Judges, we read of Gideon. And while Gideon's men were blowing their trumpets, the Lord made the enemy troops attack each other with their swords. Uh, This tells me that when peace is taken from the earth, people will slay one another. Uh, Whether that is by kings and governors and armies, or if it's by mobs with firebombs and guns and knives. Either way, peace is taken from the earth, and this happens at the very beginning of the tribulation this rider on the red horse however doesn't go away this the antichrist the war the famine and death the first four horses of the apocalypse these first four seals will continue through the entire seven years into the great tribulation and we'll see them all again in the seven trumpets and the seven bowls as we're talking about these seals Please don't fall for the common explanation of this seal and the rider and the fiery horse as that the at the that this this rider on the red horse has already been loosed, that somehow we're already in the middle of the tribulation, or maybe the fiery red horse is Russia or communism or Islam or Marxism. Uh, we we read the same. We heard the same when when COVID-19 pandemic began. And people were equating the COVID-19 pandemic with the famine that's represented in the fourth seal of the Book of Revelation, and the rider on the pale green horse that brings death and pestilence and epidemics and disease. But here's the thing. None of the previous wars that we've ever seen, World War I, World War II, nor any of the pandemics, including the bubonic plague, None of them are tribulation-worthy. Jesus, the the the, Jesus describes the time of the great tribulation, and he says that it's a time that is unmatched from the beginning of the world until now and never to be seen again. Jesus even says in Matthew 24, verse 22, that if these days, meaning the tribulation, had not been cut short, nobody would survive. In our remaining time, I do want to relate to you what the Bible says about one specific war uh, that's coming, and I mentioned it earlier. While we have already described that the second seal represents taking of the peace, and that it could be through um, civil unrest, mobs, and riots, it's often and typically described as war. In fact, in order to be tribulation worthy we really need to see a a very large-scale conflict a massive outbreak of nations against nations and nations aligning themselves against a common foe interestingly the Bible speaks of a specific war a specific gathering of nations that happens in the end time I'm referring to what is spoken of by the Prophet Ezekiel And it's commonly known as the War of Gog and Magog. That's in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Let me read from the beginning of chapter 38, and then we'll take some time to talk about the events and what scholars believe are the nations that are involved in this this war. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him and say thus says the Lord God behold I am against you O Gog, the Prince of Rosh Meshach and Tubal so let's let's pause there the wording especially if they've read this this through for the the very first time uh, may be unclear it's Daniel is Ezekiel is using apocalyptic language and you've never heard the names of these these groups or nations before we do know, however, that whatever these nations are planning, uh, God is against it. It says that right at the very beginning. Now, scholars have been able to identify these uncommon names. First of all, the word Gog uh, refers to a ruler, a prince, uh, like a king. Uh, it's not a nation at all. However, the other nations in the Alliance, including the others that come with them later, have been identified. And they are, and this is common, uh, the, the common understanding of who these nations are, include Russia, which is Magog, Iran, which is Persia, the Sudan, which is Cush, Libya, or Put, and Turkey, as it says, it's Gomer. Scholars are able to track down these nations by looking into where each tribe had settled during the time of Ezekiel. Also, Ezekiel, chapter 38, verse 5, says that God would come from the far north. And if you take a look at a world map and take a look at where Israel is and draw a line directly north of course you run into to Russia. We don't know exactly when this war that is described by Ezekiel will take place. But we do know that it's not yet happened. So my guess and it's just an educated guess that it will happen towards the very beginning of the tribulation and we'll see why that is in just a moment. Let's read a little bit more into the prophecy verse 4 says I will turn you around put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all your army horses and horsemen all splendidly clothed a great company with bucklers and shields all of them handling swords Persia Ethiopia and Libya are with them all of them with shield and helmet Gomer and all his troops the house of togarma from the far north and all its troops many people are with you prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which has long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and your troops and many people with you. So, let me summarize. Let me give you a a cliff notes version of the war. Remember the cliff notes? A cliff notes version of this war. It's Alliance of Nations. Russia, Turkey, Iran, and the Sudan decide to come against Israel. Uh, This prophecy says that this is in the latter years, when Israel has been regathered, when the land is no longer desolate, where they dwell in safety, when these nations all come against Israel. While there are nations today that have pledged to defend Israel, they've signed a mutual defense pact, Israel here is on their own. Notice in the next verse that there are some nations that object, but it's words. It's not might. Verse 13 says, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all the young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take a great plunder? Now, these nations, Sheba, Dedan, are referenced in the Bible. We know who they are. These are the names of the great-grandsons of Noah, and for centuries, people known as Sheba and Dedan were a wandering people, a nomadic people, migrating back and forth along the deserts of Arabia. Scholars identify Sheba and Dedan as the area of Saudi Arabia, likely including other countries of the Arabian Peninsula, like the UAE, that in September of 2020 has just signed a peace treaty with Israel. People that read Bible prophecy have often asked, is the United States in in the book of Revelation is it included when we take a look at the end times and that's a and that's a great question the, the United States today is not only a world power but it's the preeminent world power however most conservative Bible scholars meaning that they take the Word of God and what it says literally um, most of these scholars agree that we don't see a, a major role in the United States in the Bible from my perspective, it's likely a result uh, of millions of patriotic, flag-waving Christians being taken up to heaven in the rapture just prior to the tribulation, thinking uh, think what that would do uh, to the relationship between the United States and, and with Israel, but of course this is just speculation. However, we may see a possible reference for the United States um, in verse 3. It says, the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions. The apostle paul was from tarsus not tarshish Uh, this tarshish is associated in scripture with the far west and there's actually a verse in in psalms that mentions tarshish with sheba it says the western kings of tarshish and other distant lands will bring him tribute the eastern kings of sheba and sheba will bring him gifts you know for years We've had Bible scholars tell us that Tarshish could likely represent England. Uh, The reason for this is that in Ezekiel, we find that Tarshish traded tin with Tyre. That's Ezekiel 27. So Tarshish must have been a tin producer. And England, the English Isles, were known to be tin producers. uh, the, The Romans knew that. The verse says, and all the young lions. England has been represented as a lion for centuries and many speculate that the young lion spoken of by Ezekiel in this verse and here it comes could be the English-speaking offspring of England that includes Canada the United States Australia and New Zealand interestingly all of these countries are presently friends of Israel however in this prophecy notice they object but they don't lift a finger now I said that I believe it is likely that this war of Gog and Magog happens at the beginning of the tribulation. And the reason I believe this is because of the outcome of this war. Chapter 39, verse 1 says, Behold, I am against you, O God, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey and every sort of the beasts of the fields to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. God does it. God fights the battle for Israel. God does it all by himself. Verse 3 says, then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right. Now this could refer to a massive failure. The inability to launch their weapons and all of their armies perish on the hills of Israel. Uh, That word by the way, arrows, is just a word that means anything that flies like a missile. At the end of this prophecy, Ezekiel makes reference that the people recover the shields and bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires. In essence, Israel will recover the implements of war and turn them into energy for seven years. Now, if Israel is using these recovered implements of war for fire or energy for seven years, there just happens to be seven years. Between the beginning of the tribulation and the end the second coming of Jesus now. This is the time of of Jacob's trial Also notice the very last verse I quoted it said then they shall know That I am the Lord, you know the nation of Israel needs to know the Lord This deliverance in the last days opens the eyes of people of Israel and their hearts become tender during the tribulation many in Israel will die but at the end All that remain will be saved and Paul says that in Romans chapter 11 verse 27 you know my friends we are we are close very close to the beginning of the end I'm I'm not sending a date I'm not an alarmist I'm just telling you that we're seeing the nations the technology all of the signs that speak of the end of days coming into focus it's like one large jigsaw puzzle that's missing only a, a few pieces before it's complete. Don't let your ears not hear what the scriptures are saying clearly. Today is the day of salvation. Open your heart to what God is saying to you. The book of Hebrews says in chapter three, verse seven and eight, today if you hear your voice, if you, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for the scripture verses that clearly speak. Uh, You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.